Our next speaker is a guy that I have tremendous respect for. He has worked on a shoestring budget and refuses to give up. He has had a pit bull tenacity in the state of Virginia, which is not exactly terribly friendly towards Christianity or conservatism. Uh, he has led what's called the Virginia Black Robe Regiment in trying to uh, get this to spread to other states. He has uh, had an amazing uh, network of pastors that he has continued to work with and educate and mentor. And I would like for you to please now give a warm welcome to the Reverend Bill Cook. Hello. I just want to say to the pastors here that you are the most important people right now in the United States. Because America is going to survive or die, you, you really hold the power to, to make that happen. If you do what I'm going to talk about today, then America can be saved. I still believe America can be saved. It's not too late. God can do anything. And so... The way, I started, the way I got involved in the Black Robe Regiment wasn't because I went and heard um, Dan Fisher give, a, you know, give his briefing, which I love. It's because I was watching the Glenn Beck show one night, and Glenn had this guy named David Barton on as a guest. And David began to talk about something called the Black Regiment, something I'd never heard of. And so, you know, he said, those were the pastors. That, uh, that really made the difference in the American Revolution. I had never heard that. To me, that was a surprise, but it got me very excited because it was a time in my life where I was spending all my time focused on the Islamic threat. And I was learning a lot about it. I was working with guys like Walid Ferez, uh, with Frank Gaffney, John Guandolo, Stephen Coughlin. They'd all become good friends. And, and I was trying to educate Americans and people in the church about the Islamic threat. I thought that was what I should be doing. I had pastored in churches before. I, when I left Regent University, I had been there seven years. I pastored a church there in, uh, in Hampton Roads for about seven years as, as a, an associate. At Regent University, I was the assistant campus minister and director of student life for seven years. It was great. You know, being at Regent University, it was like, you know, just it was like the nirvana of Christianity. And, um, but after a while, I got a little bit tired of it. I felt like God was calling me to do something else. So I took a pastorate in Pittsburgh, spent three years there. I managed 65 small groups. That was my role to oversee the small group ministry. And, um, then I came back to Northern Virginia. I felt the call to come back to Northern Virginia. My wife and I returned and, uh, I obtained a position in a Anglican church or an Episcopal church. That was really interesting. But somewhere in there, I, I was laid off from that position, and I was between jobs, and I was, sitting, I was thinking about what was happening to our country. This was in 2012. That was when Barack Obama started his second term in office, and I was really afraid for our country because I knew he was evil. I could just tell. And I wanted to do something to you know, leave my children a future because I felt they weren't going to have one. If things continued on the trajectory they were on, I was going to lose, we were going to lose everything. And um, so I was searching, what can I do to make a difference? I tried writing, I tried fighting the Islamic issue. And um, 
it, it, none of it seemed to be having any impact. People didn't want to hear about it. Churches didn't want to hear about the Islamic threat. Then I heard about the Black Robe Regiment. I said, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe I need to do something like this. Instead of running away from a name like Black Regiment, which is kind of edgy, I thought, well, maybe I should just use that name. It's a little bit edgy, but things need to be edgy right now. Because um, if we're worried about nomenclature more than we're worried about saving the country, then something's wrong. And so I really adopted it as a badge of honor. And uh, we started in 2012. So we held an event at Patrick Henry College, and we invited a lot of different people. That's, it wasn't a huge crowd, but it was, it was a number of pastors there. Our keynote speaker was General Boykin. Jerry Boykin came and spoke, gave an unbelievable message. Uh, E.W. Jackson was also there. He spoke. We had Michael Ferris. It's like everybody who was doing conservative pro-life ministry in Virginia came, and it was a very exciting event. And at the end, we gave, the, we gave a call, an, invite, an invitation for pastors to join the cause, and it was kind of interesting because the message was so compelling that every pastor in, in the seats cleared out and came forward. Some of them actually ran to the front, and that's how we got launched. Well, I thought, wow, we're off to a great start. We just had an incredible event, and, and we're just going to be rocking and rolling from here on out. Well, that was, that was just a unique, a unique set of people because I didn't start rocking and rolling right away. My wife will tell you, the next seven years were really challenging because most of the time when I went and talked to a pastor about getting involved at some level in what was happening in our society... I just got a cold shoulder or a no. We don't want to do that. We want nothing to do with politics. And, and I wasn't calling them to do something in politics. I was calling them to begin preaching the whole counsel of God, and, which they don't do. If, if a pastor, if you will not preach an election sermon, that you're not willing to proclaim the whole counsel of God. You can't claim that you're willing to do that. Because teaching God's people how to behave in the voting booth is part of the whole counsel of God. And the reason that America is being destroyed right now, the reason we are in the predicament we are in right now, with multiple threats coming against our nation, is because pastors have not addressed these things from the pulpit. These are, two, these are the two principal threats coming against our nation right now, Islam and communism. Both are existential threats, and they have formed a nexus in America, and they're, they're both working together. In fact, Stephen Coughlin, who's an expert on this stuff, tells me that the Muslims are executing the communist strategy better than the uh, communists. So which of these, these movements would uh, not want to completely annihilate the church? This is what I want to say. The situation right now in our country is so dire. If we lose this election, if the church does not rise up in this election, we're going to see genocide. So you can decide, Pastor, if you're willing to have the courage to preach an election sermon, to teach your flock a biblical worldview, or you can decide to wait and have the courage to go through genocide. Because that's what is coming. 
every single place where communism or Islam have gained the upper hand has been genocide. It always has. It's not going to, in fact, America's probably going to, would, would probably get the worst of it if, if these movements ever took over because there's a lot of hate for America because we've been the only obstacle to their ascendancy around the world in history. Think about that. Let me just talk for a second about tyranny. Then I'll talk about networking. How do you recognize tyranny? You can go ahead and just flip through until it's all up there. Tyranny is deceit. How do we, how do we ever end up with tyranny in the first place? The serpent. He's the father of tyrants. The way that, tyrants are generally weak. The way that they arrogate authority or take authority is they deceive their target. And that's what happened with, with the serpent. Need my glasses here. Deceit is the lingua franca of tyranny. There are no, there are no tyrants that don't lie. Generally they're weak, but they lie to gain power. What Adam did at the fall, when he, did, when he obeyed the serpent, was he surrendered his regency over the earth, making Satan, the god of this world, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So what happens when the church vacates government, walks away from any responsibility for government? What happens? Who takes over? The children of disobedience, right? Does it make sense? What do we have today in many quarters within our government? We have children of disobedience running everything. Who's working in them? Who is at work in the children of disobedience? Can we possibly, if the, if, if the idea that the church should not be involved in politics is true, then we're going to have tyranny. We absolutely will have tyranny. In fact, what I would say to you is that America would have been absolutely impossible had it not been principally, uh, the, the, had the war for independence and, and the years preceding not been essentially a Christian movement. After about eight years of doing the Black Robe Regiment of Virginia, I was very discouraged as, as uh, Paul said, you know, I was really just surviving on perseverance. I was very discouraged. Our finances were really uh, suffering. And there were, I mean, for, for most of the previous, I guess, two years ago, for most of the year, we paid, we, we were so tight for money that we were paying our rent in uh, two installments each month, just to give you an idea, so we could survive. We often ran out of, ran out of time in a month before we ran, I mean, we ran out of money before we ran out of month. And I remember one day I was thinking about this and I thought, Lord, this is nuts. I'm not doing this anymore. I just, I just said, I quit. And um, I tried to mean it in my heart that I was going to quit. And I just, for some reason, I've tr- I tried it before, but, this, and I, and, but I couldn't do it. This time I meant it. And the minute that that thought went through my heart, the thought of giving up. And one of the reasons I, I one of the other thoughts I had while I was saying, Lord, I quit is, who do I think I am anyway? I'm just one guy. 
How can, I, how can I rescue a nation? I'm just one guy. How arrogant can I be? And it occurred to me that we were overrun, that the, God, that the godless of the world had overrun America. Muslims were everywhere. Marxism was on the march. And I felt like it's hopeless. Why, why am I trying to do this? And the minute I said that, the Lord brought it quickened the verse in Hebrews, two verses to, to my heart in Hebrews, where God says, where, where the writer said in the, about the hall of faith, he said, they subdued kingdoms. And I thought, okay, people subdued kingdoms through faith. They wrought righteousness. They stopped the mouths of lions. They put foreign armies to flight. And I thought, okay, we're dealing with a horde. We're dealing with impossible circumstances. But you know what? We can do this. With, by God's grace and with his assistance. Because God's the same today as he was during, during those stories in the Old Testament. He can still do that. He can still put foreign armies to flight. He can still turn back what's happening in our country. But we have got to rise up. Christians have got to rise up. And pastors, you have to lead. Pastors founded America. Right? Somebody said yes, sir. One of the things I've learned since I started the Black Robe Regiment of Virginia was that pastors really did found America. And they had taught the political ideology in the, in the founding charters for well over 25 years by the time that hostilities commenced in Lexington under the, under the uh, leadership of Jonas Clark. So they provided the impetus for the war for independence. And without pastors today doing similar things, we're going to lose the country. I know today, one of the things I see in churches today is, is um, pastors don't want to say anything that might seem conservative politically, right? Because there's probably one or two members or a handful of people they don't want to lose. Because going by the belief that you can be a Christian and yet, be, and yet want to, you know, be okay with abortion or, or homosexuality or whatever, you know, it, you can still be a Christian and do those things, and I don't want to lose those people. I don't want to, I don't want to lose the opportunity to win them to Christ or to, to help them get their minds renewed. But we're, lo- we're going to lose the country because of that. We're losing the country, folks. And I don't think, I don't think most Americans have any idea I don't think most Christians have any idea how bad it will really be if we do. But you are the bullseye. Pastors are the bullseye. You guys are going to get it worse than anybody. So it's time to stand up. You know, one of the things when I would talk to pastors about getting involved and get a, uh, get a cold shoulder, I, I would think to myself, they don't, care. they don't care what happens to my children. I have five children that I love. And now I have nine grandchildren. And I'm, I'm very concerned for their futures. I really am. And so I couldn't stand by and do nothing. I felt like I had to do something. Even if, every, even if nobody else wants to do anything, I'm going to do something. And um, so here I am. The interesting thing is that within the last couple of years, God has really begun to do some amazing things in, in this ministry. And a lot more, there are pastors getting involved all over the country. 
not just in Virginia. We've, in Virginia, we have, one of the ways we've networked with pastors is we have held pastor summits throughout the state of Virginia. We've had hundreds of pastors go, go through that. One of the things we teach pastors is you have a duty to preach at least one election sermon before every election. You have a duty to do that. And it's not just a duty, it's a sacred duty. And part of what you have to preach to your flock is that not only is preaching an election sermon a sacred duty, not doing it is disobedience, but teaching your flock that they have a sacred duty to vote. It's not a, it's not a civic duty, it's a sacred duty. Because if the church doesn't secure liberty, it doesn't secure liberty for, for the whole society. Why do we have abortion today? I'll tell you why. Because generally, 40 million evangelicals don't vote. That's roughly the number in 20, 20, um, 2016. And I've, I've heard anywhere between 15 million and 25 million are not even registered. That's what silence about politics has done in the church. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is coming back, and, and I'm going to get out of here anyway, right? That my, that's, I guess that's the eschatology of some. But I have, this, I have this sneaky feeling that God's not going to grab us out of here after we've allowed the country to go to hell. We are the only ones that can do it. And if we don't secure liberty, it won't get secured. And I, and I feel we will... Face, we're going to have to face that, whatever comes of that. So um, the other thing we tell pastors they have to do, in addition to teaching a biblical worldview and, and impressing upon their flocks that they have a sacred duty to vote in every election, every time the polls are open, they have a sacred duty, uh, is on election day, they have to turn them out to vote. In addition to doing that, we're saying you have to register the members of your, of your flock to vote. Make it available within your church. I know that's distasteful for some, but it's got to happen. If we, if we have 40 million evangelicals that don't vote in this election coming up, 30 million, there's going to be so much fraud in this election. It's being set up for massive fraud. And the only way we can assure that we overcome that is that every single Christian has to vote, like their life depends on it. It really has to become inexcusable for a person not to vote. It's a voting age. It's not for, for someone not to vote or not to register and then not vote. It's the only way we can, re, we can assure that we, have, we live after this election. Because if we lose this election, it won't be long before we're, gonna, we're, gonna be, we're going through persecution. And a lot of people are going to die. I'm, I'm convinced of it. I... I I think this is, I think it's really serious. Maybe you think never in America, but I believe it's coming if we don't rise up and do something in this election. It's critical. My wife and I worked the polls in our precinct the last couple of elections. They were off year elections, and so the turnout was, was small. But in 2018, we, we, watched the, we, did, we were poll watchers, and there were 47 people that voted the entire day. This is Northern Virginia. So what I did was I, I got out a map and I, tried, and I found all the churches that were within, you know, four or five, ten miles of the, of the voting precinct. 
and there was I found probably ten churches totaling attendance of of, of ten thousand Christians in that area. Now there's no excuse for that. And the same thing happened last year, 2019. There was an off-year election. 57 people. I came in. I went into the polls late at night, late in the late in the day, and I asked the the person that was watching over things there how many people had voted. He said 57. It's it's like they, people don't even know. And pastors who refuse to talk about government. I mean, it doesn't even have to be political. Just talk about government. Talk about the role of government. Talk about securing the blessings of liberty. And God will honor that. If your people, you know, if people, why do we have abortion today? Why does abortion just continue on and on in our society? Why do we have sodomy? Why are our schools indoctrinating children? Because we let it happen. Something as simple as voting. If every Christian, just think about that. If 40 million people that don't vote, voted, will we not take an election? We crush. So if our culture, if we say we're pro-life, and our culture continues to murder the unborn, maybe we're not pro-life because we don't vote. So it's really important that we do that. And um, that's what we're focused on now. And, you know, God, like I said, God's been blessing the effort. I, I'm so glad I met Paul and Dan. They've been a tremendous blessing to me. And working with them has been a real blessing. Um, but God just started, like I said, 12 months ago, opening doors, uh, bringing people into my life and into the, into the things we were doing. And it's expanding. Uh, significantly to other states. I've received calls from California, Michigan, New Hampshire, uh, Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee. There's people in those states that want to start black regiments. I don't want to control the, you know, I don't want to run everything black regiment in America. That'd be too much. But I'm willing to help individuals in different states stand up a black robe regiment there. And what's the, the vision for the black robe regiment is a regiment or a cadre or a company of pastors in every political jurisdiction in America. Think of that. Just think of your local politics. Think of a group, a small group of pastors. This is what we did in Virginia. Two or three guys that are like-minded begin to meet and strategize how they can begin to assert their own influence, their leadership and influence, and the leadership and influence of their flocks in civil government. Isn't that what salt is? If we are the salt of the earth, we are the curators of our temporal sojourn, right? So one of the things I'd like you to do today, because I want, I'm sure sure this is something that the other people here that are leading this event want to see happen, is to have every pastor in this meeting that's been part of this to commit to teaching their flocks how to behave in the voting booth. Say, follow me into the voting booth as I follow the Lord into the voting booth. Teach your people how to vote. 
Forget the Johnson Amendment. You know, one of the reasons I went through financial hardship is I refused to apply for nonprofit status because I knew that the Johnson Amendment was an effort to silence the pulpits, and it's worked beautifully. Think of all the things that have happened to our country since the Johnson Amendment was passed, since the, since the pulpit was muted. Every single thing we have today has come since the Johnson Amendment. And I think it's time to renounce it. I don't care what the government says. I don't care if Donald Trump does an executive order. It doesn't matter. It's time to disobey that and preach the whole counsel of God. Because when we get to heaven, we're not going to um, say, say to the Lord, well, Lord, I really didn't want to talk about politics because, you know, the government said I shouldn't and I didn't want to be disobedient to government. What's the cost of silence? It's huge. It's massive. And I believe we have, this is a time for defying that like never before. We have got to rise above that. So what I'd like you guys to do is just be thinking about who's around you right now. Pick somebody you don't know that you didn't come with and just exchange contact information with them. And then within the week, within the next seven days after this event, call that person and see how they're doing in planning for preaching an election sermon. I mean, pastors are just, they're great at finessing topics that are awkward. Just commit to it. You can talk about human sexuality. You can talk about the marriage between a man and a woman. You can talk about all kinds of delicate subjects. But for some reason, when it comes to politics, that's the hardest one. It shouldn't be. But it's time to do that. So why don't you get up, just find somebody that you didn't come with, exchange information with them. Stand up. Go to someone you didn't come with and exchange personal information, get their contact information, and then commit to following up with them after the event. Don't spend a lot of time, just do it quickly. Okay. If you haven't found anybody yet, just let's go ahead and be seated again. But make sure before you leave here you have a name that you're going to call. And when you follow up with that person, let me get your attention. I think I've started a fellowship.
Yeah. All right, let's get back together here. I'm almost done. Thank you. You know, you, there have been some really great speakers this week, some, some august oracles of God. Paul Blair, Dan Fisher, E.W. Jackson, others. And it can be a, it can be a very intimidating thing getting up here and uh, speaking after all of these guys have spoken. But the Lord showed me, don't let any man despise your youth. That was a joke if you didn't get it. <laughs> That's right. The other thing is when you, when you follow up, commit to following up, and when you follow up, ask how they're doing getting ready to register the members of the churches to vote. Just discuss, what you're gonna, just discuss with each other what you're going to do to get your members to turn out to vote. Because, folks, this is, this is it. We are, you know, somebody said earlier, I believe we're going to trounce in this election. Scott, Scott Lively said that. Uh, I don't necessarily share that confidence at this point. And, and it's, as I said earlier, if, if more than, I mean, if 40 million evangelicals stay home on election day, we're not going to win this election. So it is imperative that we do everything we can to turn out every member of our church to vote, our churches to vote. It's imperative. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this day. We thank you for this election. Lord, forgive us for allowing our nation to get to the place that it is, Lord, where we are facing tyranny. Lord, where we are staring down tyranny and we're in the midst of a Maoist insurgency, Lord, a revolution. Lord, we acknowledge our role in allowing that to happen. Lord, forgive us. Help us to turn this nation back to you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Amen.